Hi there. This is Joel Greenberg, author of A Feathered River Across the Sky, The Passenger Pigeon's Flight to Extinction. And you're listening to 1590 WCGO, Chicago's Smart Talk. The Mike Novak Show starts in 3, 2, 1. It's so good. No matter where we're at, no matter where we go, I can guarantee that I can show you 50 different edible things. We actually have some amaranth right here. Very popular in Asian cuisine. I've probably sold to about 300 individual Chicago restaurants, maybe more. We got some bergamot flowers. Typically on the average week, I'll sell to about 20, 25 restaurants on a regular basis. If you want to try one of the hosta flowers, there's some right there. Oh, that's tasty. A lot of people ask me, like, oh, how do you know a dog didn't pee on it or a rat nearby or whatever? And it's like, do you even know what country the last apple that you ate came from? And that's like an honest question. Like, what country did the apple that you last ate came from? And people don't know. Compared to the things that they intentionally put on our food in the grocery store, picking something out of an alley and eating it is probably the least of your worries. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio, flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome at 877-711-5611. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets. This hour is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. And by Happy Leaf LED Grow Lights, USA made with a five-year warranty. Jumpstart your plants with better light. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. Alan, 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 out, Alan. That's an honor. Well, oh, no, and then the mic. Alan! Wow. That Whoa, was, that, what happened to my mic? Okay, we suddenly got really loud there. I'm not sure what happened, uh, but that's okay. The, the way we start every show is to have a microphone problem, whether it's the, the, the this thing drooping uh, or something else. Oh, dear. It's, oh, come on. You, you're killing me here. You are killing me. Look, I'll just right, hold look, it for the uh, show. Oh. There we go. Right, no, no, now it's too high. Now, yeah, we ease it. Ease it. Stay. Ease. Woof. Stay. Woof. Wow. Wow. Phew. You knew the job was dangerous when you took it, Fred. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. And that's, and that's, I'm so excited. Hello. We're back in the studio. See, that's it. We're back in the studio. Yeah. It's... You know, when we're on location, everything goes fine. Well, that's not true. That Not everything goes fine. We do have a, we have the occasional issue, but... Man, we had fun the last couple of weeks on location at the uh, Chicago Flower and Garden Show and then at uh, Wild Blossom Meadery, Winery, Brewery, and um, Basketball Court. 
uh, on the south side of Chicago. And uh, we want to I want to thank Greg and Audrey uh, Fisher, who uh, were wonderful hosts. And then mm-hmm. we had the mead tasting afterward, which was unbelievable. Uh, Chef Carrie Schloss uh, prepared a fantastic uh, tasting and there was mead tasting and, and honey, honey tasting. And- I mean, it was it was amazing and uh, just a great time. So I advise if you're in Chicago area, you need to go down there. You need to just go. It's in the city. I mean, who knew? Who knew you could have a uh, a meadery in the city of Chicago? But here we are back in the studio for at least, well, two weeks. And then we're mm-hmm. going to go flying out again to another thing that we'll talk about uh, later in the show. So uh, we just... Uh, we take the show, uh, you know, have microphone, we'll travel. Uh, Radio in a box. Yeah, but one of the great things about being here in the studio is that I get to play with my little toys here. All right. It's back. <laughs> well, you, you, you got a problem with that? Shut up, Wesley. Okay. Uh, and I got a new one. I got a new one that I, that I uh, from, from an intro we did the other week. And I, because we're getting into spring here, mm-hmm. into serious spring. Uh, I have a feeling I'm, I'm going to be able to trot this out from time to time. Lawns are a soul-crushing time suck, and most of us would be better off without them. Okay, that is the... Uh, he's, I, I, I said on the air they, they call him Mr. Science. I don't think he's Mr. Science. He's... Right. Professor Science. Or it was uh, the science dude. No, the science dude is my buddy, Mike... Uh, um, oh, uh, uh, and I can't remember his last name at, um, uh, at, um, Roosevelt. I can't remember where he teaches either. Okay. There we yeah. Go. Okay. Now I can picture him and I'll, I'll try to come up with his last name too. Uh, yeah, not you know, thinking of, yes, goatee, I know exactly who you're talking smart about. Smart guy, written yes. books, been to Antarctica. Yes. Knows all that stuff. I know stuff. exactly who you're oh, speaking of. Well, I'll tell you what. When Help. We will take a break. Uh, <laughs> and then we come back. I will have Mike's name because I played softball with his brother. I played softball with him too. And. It's just gone. It's it's not there. But it'll be back as soon as I uh, as soon as I uh, am not pressured to come up with it. Uh, coming into the studio because they're sitting outside right now are Dan Protest, and he's the producer and writer of a show online show uh, on PBS WTTW in Chicago called Urban Nature. Um, we had him on a couple of years ago when they had their first season. Now they've got their second, and one of the episodes is about a guy named Dave Odd. Yes, that's his real name, and he's out there, and he does odd things with food. You're going to want to stick around for that. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki in studio. We'll be right back. This is Mike Novak. Are you ready to take your indoor gardening to the next level? You need to download the Anywhere, Anytime Garden Booklet from HappyLeafLED.com. You'll learn about lighting and troubleshooting and get advice from the pros about starting your seeds. Go to HappyLeafLED.com and click on the microphone to download the beta version. Your suggestions might be used in the final publication. HappyLeafLED.com. Your seedlings will thank you. Do you love trees? Do you have a great story to tell about a special tree in your life? The Morton Arboretum and Open Lands have partnered to launch Tremendous Tree Stories, an online collection of stories highlighting people's connections to trees. Submit stories of the trees you cherish, remember from your childhood, or that hold a special meaning for you. Browse their collection and consider sharing your own tree story by visiting tree-stories.org. That's tree-stories.org. 
right, everybody sing. <laughs> Crossing the highway late last night. He should have looked left and he should have looked right. He didn't see the station wagon car. The skunk got squashed. And there, there you are. are. You got your dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead mm. skunk in the middle of the road. And what's he doing? Okay, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. I don't know, I just, that was, that was, uh, I found that very quickly. I had really not planned to, to play that uh, today, but yeah, you know. I had it, to bring out Loudon Wainwright. But I had to, because uh, it seems apropos, <laughs> uh, because we have uh, Dan Protest back in studio here, was here a couple of years ago to talk about his program, Urban Nature. Uh, Dan, hey, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Don't mind me, Peggy. I, I, I've got to do it said, myself. If you, you hold if, that if, thing, no, the no, whole no, show. no, no, you're not. You're not going to hold it. We're going <laughs> to we're going to make sure that it, it sits there. OK. Stay. All right. It's a, sorry. Microphone issue. And uh, they, have, they have a way of running away from you. They do. Yes. It's just, you know, it's not just. The folks in the room and and the the stuff you're doing now, now you got to deal with the technology as well. And I see now I can't even see them. And if I move the mic, it's uh, no no no. See, I can't even talk into it. Okay. Uh, but Dan uh, has uh, done this wonderful series, um, and uh, it is uh, hosted by M- Marcus Cronforce. He's an Cron- evo- evolutionary Cronforce. biologist. Yeah, right. he is like one of the world's foremost experts on butterflies. Yeah, but- it, yeah, I and, his, and you guys do. You've yeah. done several uh, episodes about butterflies, which yep. is cool. I was watching the one uh, just the other day uh, about climate change and mm-hmm. cabbage butterflies. Yeah. And, and you'd think cabbage butterflies, you know, you see them all the time, the white butterflies in your yard. Mm-hmm. And when I see them, I'm going, uh-oh, what plant are they destroying here? Destroying, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you looked at it and said... You know, they might be a bellwether uh, as uh, as temperatures go up and yeah. carbon dioxide levels increase. Yeah, so these are these little white butterflies. I have to admit, I actually thought that they were moths. Uh, so this was really? news to me mm-hmm. that they were actually butterflies. You see them all over the place. That's why but... you got a PhD there uh, on the show. Yeah, for, right, for exactly, to, to teach me um, basic uh, biology 101. So he, Marcus usually studies exotic butterflies mm-hmm. from South America and Asia, but, you know, noticed these in his backyard in Hyde Park and said, you know, could these be a bellwether for climate change effects to come? And so the way he was able to figure out whether or not they're going to do well or, or poorly in the face of climate change was he used these environmental chambers. They kind of look like refrigerators, mm-hmm. but he can he can raise them in these refri- refrigerators um, and he can turn up the temperature. He can turn up the CO2. And um, he did that uh, side by side with the cabbage white butterflies and their host plant, which is a, you know, they're in the The, cabbage and mustard family. Yeah. yeah. Right. And um, the, the, the butterflies need those plants. That is the only plant they can lay their eggs on. And what he found was that the butterflies just by themselves do okay. Uh, under high temperature mm-hmm. and high CO2, but the plants do not do well. They start to die very quickly, and the butterfly um, can't survive without the plant, and so then the butterfly dies. And this is what we're likely to yeah. expect here. And so, you know, we should be concerned about those pesky butterflies, but it's also just an indication that other plant anim- uh, animal interactions are going to go haywire as the temperatures rise. Well, since yeah. we we're talking about plants. Oh, oh, and, and my... then the other, the disembodied voice you're hearing is a guy named Dave Odd, and we'll get to him in a second. Dave? 
Uh, I was going to ask. Um, so there are tons of plants in the brassica family, the, the yeah. mustard family. Um, are those butterflies specialized to only specific species or can they have uh, any species of with, brassica? In that plant, fa- it, they in the only family, right. lay their eggs on plants within that family. So there are a bunch. It's cabbage, uh, mustard. There's tons of them that are there there's tons of wild like pretty much there is no toxic species that i'm aware of in that family so literally any brassica family plant any mustard family plant that you find in the wild yeah. is in fact edible not in yeah. one way or another um some of them may uh may cause digestive upset there's some that are like less edible than others um and there are some that like used to be considered edible that are you know like, you should probably avoid it um but there's none that are toxic. There's none that are poisonous. Not toxic to us, yes. but toxic to many butterfly species. And this is something that we learned, that these two species have been the cabbage white butterfly and these cabbage family plants mm-hmm. have been evolving side by side since dinosaurs roamed the earth. But, it, but it's like monarchs and milkweed. Exactly. Except that yeah. with, with monarchs, it's it's much more specific. With, with the, the cabbage butterflies, any plant in the brassica family right yeah uh, is a host right and mm-hmm. so but they and there are many of them but they've been evolving side by side for so long yes. that it just takes a just tiny change in environmental conditions right. to throw off that interaction that's been going on for millions of years between the butterfly and the plant one of the most fascinating uh relationships in nature that i find when i'm out foraging is um the yucca plant you know the the plant you know Everyone's got a yucca, seen mm-hmm. yucca plants before they got yucca these or yucca. Yucca. Some people well, call them yucca. I just want to make sure we, we two, know. There's, there's a eucalyptus. A eucalyptus there's there's actually yucca. two different plants. Okay. So there's yucca with one C and there's yucca with two C's. Oh. So the yucca with two C's is the food plant, I think. And the yucca with one C is an ornamental plant that cannot be eaten. But, Which will kill you on sight. Uh, eh, it won't kill you. But, right. <laughs> um, but they all have edible flowers. Mm-hmm. So they have these big, waxy, um, kind of bell-shaped white flowers. White flowers. Yeah. And if you go up to one of those plants when they're blooming and just give the stalk a little shake, you'll see these little white moths fly out of it. Ah. And it's called the yucca moth. And the yucca moth's only source of food is the yucca plant. And the mm. yucca plant's only method of reproducing and being pollinated is through the yucca moth. So these, these that moth and that plant cannot exist without one another. It's so you can imagine how mm-hmm. easy it, it is for either of those species to die off yeah. should something go awry in the ecosystem. Correct. Uh-huh. I'm, I just typed in yucca versus yucca. Um, and then there's yucca, pronounced yucca, the root of the cassava plant which is known botanically as Manihot esculenta, okay, is a nutty-flavored starch tuber native to South America. is also found in Asia and parts of Africa, together, together with other tropical root vegetables like yam, taro, and most notably the potato. It is an indispensable part of the carbohydrate diet for many. Yeah, you can mm-hmm. make them into French fries, which are delicious. <laughs> All right, kind, well, well, kind not... of terrible French fries, but French fries nonetheless. Oh, right. I disagree. <laughs> I love them with some butter. They're good. Well, see, now I'm I'm tempted to try them just just to see how bad they really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that other guy who jumped in. Okay, and we're going to get back to to urban nature and all the mm-hmm. different kinds of of episodes that you've put together, and there are a lot. And they and basically, it's about 
going into big cities and you've got Chicago, Austin, Miami, New York, San Francisco. What am I missing? That's uh, it. That's it. That's it. it. All right. And uh, you, uh, you, you look at the nature in those cities because it's all around us and we often miss it. And one of the episodes you did for the new season, because this is season two, and folks, it's not, you don't go on TV to watch it, you go online to watch it, and you can do it at your leisure. And they're really quite bite-sized episodes, quite manageable. Yeah, five to ten minutes, WTTW.com slash Urban Nature. Yeah. Now, okay, I have to ask you, uh, because this is always confusing, because people will say to you, uh, whether it's NPR or PBS, they'll say, oh, is the show on PBS uh, and you'll say, well, it's on WTTW. Is that the same as PBS in this case, uh, or is it WTTW? Well, we are the local PBS station, but it these appear on the WTTW website and on social media, and perhaps at some point down the line, they'll be on television as well. So, but, it, um, Yeah, we've kind of moved to a world here, just like we're streaming right now on the mm-hmm. internet as well as on the radio. Yeah. We've moved to a world where you can get content anywhere, anytime. And, and you, you can go to pbs.org and look up Urban Nature there as well for our listeners elsewhere in the country. But basically, just yeah. search Urban Nature. Yeah, WTTW. WTTW, and you can watch it anywhere in the country, anytime, anywhere in the world, anytime. All right, we're going to get back to that because you got a lot of interesting stories, but this guy that injected himself into the conversation before I even gave him permission... Uh, but that's okay. His name is Dave Odd. And, and Dave, I was telling you in the parking lot here that a friend of mine had sent me a text. Here's the text. Oh. He, and he sent me photos. And he said, you got, okay, and that's Dave Dinelli. And he's the superintendent. Dan Donnelly. I'm sorry, Dan Donnelly. I keep, you know, I'm Dave. You're Dave. He's Dan. I did that to, to a guest the other week whose name was Dan, and I call him Dave. I don't know what I'm doing here. Uh, and by the way, it was, uh, uh, oh, never mind. Mike Bryson was uh, the guy that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, that whose last name I couldn't remember. This is not good. A radio host is supposed to remember names. But it's why I will never be a politician, because... I, I don't know who you are, and then I can't uh, I can't move forward. So anyway, Dan Donnelly sends me this text and says, "You got to have this guy Dave Odd on your show," and it's and it's a photo of Odd Produce, and I don't know he's it's a label. That's my business card. Oh, so he that was the business card. Yeah. So he got a business card for you. You don't. <laughs> you're uh, there. T- take that, uh, Ellie. Good idea. Start ordering some produce. And he mm-hmm. said uh, he mentioned mushrooms. Uh, and that's you forage mushrooms. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things yeah. that you do. But you also forage and foraging has become a big deal um, in the last, I don't know, decade. Uh, you got books. I, I, I Well, if you want to get real technical, yeah, right. it's, it's kind of been a thing for thousands and thousands <laughs> yeah. of well, years. Yeah, I, I know that. There's but a lot of books coming out there was about a, it lately. There was a time where grocery stores didn't exist. Yeah. yeah what? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Yeah. No, they people went into alleys and they foraged uh, hostas uh, yeah. in the alleys. Um, but uh, no, the point I'm making is that, uh, yeah, it's trendy. Let me put it that way. Foraging yeah. is trendy. So now you have folks writing books about foraging, and then you have the masses of humanity saying, ew, I would never do right. that. And people like you who are making a living at it and selling it to shishi restaurants and saying, um, I'm making a good living at this. So, uh, or at least a decent, you're making some kind of living at it, aren't you, Dave? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm doing better than I ever have in my life. But then again, I was a comedian for 15 years, so... <laughs> You know, I don't have much to compare it to. <laughs> um, well, 
but there you are out foraging. So tell me a little bit about you were a comedian. Did it turn into foraging? Have you you've already so, always been interested in nature, from what I understand? Right. So I was I was trying to keep up with the comments on so on the Facebook page. Um, they posted the the video, and I had to field. I basically had to defend myself to a bunch of people because really? the people who go you no well it's there's there's this whole thing with foraging where uh you get two you get two reactions you get the you and like the basically the ignorance of I don't like I don't know what where this comes this is mm-hmm. com- they they imagine you like picking it out of like you know a pea soaked alley somewhere mm-hmm. um and. So there's that end of it, and then there's the kind of environmentalist end of it of people that are very concerned about nature that mm-hmm. are are concerned that you're going in and you're just like tearing out whole you're just running through the woods, just ripping up clumps of everything and throwing it in a garbage bag. You're going to make shoulder. ramps go extinct. <laughs> yeah, um, that kind of thing. So uh, you know, people think because I forage for profit that I must be, you know. Uh, unscrupulous and I must be, mm. you know, just going out there and poaching everything. And that's not really the case. And and the the way I like to put it is this. It doesn't matter how organic or GMO-free or gluten-free that your fancy food that you're getting from Whole Foods or the farmer's market is. All of that stuff had to be grown somewhere, probably that was cleared woodlands or prairie or whatever like mm-hmm. you have to bulldoze land to grow food so the the thing or, is or, or till it plow it right but yeah. the the point is that you're clearing out wilderness to grow edible food for humans mm-hmm. or you can just go into the wilderness and pick some of the things that grow there so really what's more sustainable if you really think about it um and that's that's kind of my my logic going into it. And and on top of that, outside of ramps, um, which is something that I do feel bad about harvesting because the the chefs want the whole plant, so they mm-hmm. want you to uh, they yeah, want the whole plant. You would prefer to keep I would roots prefer in the ground, right? I would prefer yeah. to just keep the leaves. You know, just take the leaves yeah, or whatever. Harvest the leaves and um, the bulb. The the thing the thing is that ramps are. I, I believe at some point there's going to be some sort of legislation that protects them um, because in Canada it's illegal to pick ramps because people were wiping them out. Um, and throughout, as this trend has grown over the last 10 years or so of foraging, ramps have become a much more popular ingredient. And there are some, um, there are some farms and stuff that just won't pick them anymore because mm-hmm. they depleted the populations that they were picking from. Um, I personally have been picking from the same lot uh, twenty acre lot, friends lot that I found um over in Indiana um about eight years ago. And she didn't want them. She she didn't want them. No, she was like she was like our lawn smells funny when we mow it. Um, <laughs> um, but when we first approached her and like, hey, can we pick some of these ramps? She's like, what are those? And and the thing is that um this he, this place had never been picked before. Nobody had ever touched it. Uh. So you could like. Walking through the woods, you were just you were stepping on more ramps than you were picking, mm-hmm. no matter how many you picked. So the thing is that when a population gets that dense, it starts to carpet the entire. You're doing forest. it a favor, not even or so even much, the the, it, the ecosystem. It, I I put it to, put it like this. Um, so imagine every two square feet, three square feet, there's just a, a hundred ramps yeah. right there. You know, a thousand ramps. 
Um, so you're just picking one cluster in each little grid and then moving on to the next grid and picking one or two clusters from there. And essentially it's like pruning a tree. You're just cutting off the, you know, the, the, the branches that are weak. And what happens is you're allowing new growth to flourish, mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. plants to come up. And that how do, how do ramps, uh, uh, recreate, uh, procreate, uh, how do they spread? So... They have a, they have a, they are an allium, they're an onion. So mm-hmm. if you've ever had allium in your yard, whether it be the, the mm-hmm. ornamental garlic or the, you know, the, the big globe flower onions, um, they'll shoot up this, this um, uh, flower stalk that has this little explosion of flowers on it. It looks like a little firework. And each one of those flowers will turn into a seed. And then that seed, if it even gets to drop to the ground, mm-hmm. Has to be in the ground for th- yeah, two or three, three years, years, I think, before the sh- the the shell breaks down enough for it to grow. All right, that music music means we've got a break. We'll be right back. The Mike Novak Show with Peggy Blecky. Smart farmers know that good growing starts with good soil biology. And you can't do better than with products from Tinyo Biologicals, the industry leader for 30 years, now available through Blazing Star. You'll find soil and seed inoculants, growth-promoting enzymes, foliar fertilizers, and biostimulants. Whether you're conventional, organic, or in transition, learn about Tinyo's biological farm management system. Go to blazing-star.com, and while you're there, check out their pollinator packets. If you're looking to invest in an electrical car or truck, make sure to hire a state-licensed electrical contractor. The installation of that charger will require a permit in most municipalities, so make sure to check the ICC website for a certified contractor at icc.illinois.gov. You can also call DNR Services Unlimited. They've been a licensed electrical contractor since 1992. Visit their website at restorethenorthshore.com or give them a call at 847-998-1687. It'll be easy to find someone cheaper, but a lot harder to find someone better. More than ever, Chicagoans are looking for resources to help them lead a healthier, more sustainable lifestyle. I'm Peggy, and I publish Natural Awakenings, Chicago's greenest and healthiest local magazine. And if you want to reach consumers that support this growing wellness market, you need to get your business in front of our 80,000 monthly readers. Why? Because our advertisers tell us our readers are committed to improving their health, leading greener lives, and taking action. They're looking for holistic wellness practitioners, integrative doctors, nutritionists, nutritionists, organic products, relaxation options, fitness and yoga classes, green landscapers, energy efficiency experts, and more. Our dedicated readers pick up their free copies of Natural Awakenings each month throughout Chicago and the suburbs because they know it's our area's best source for information about healthy green living. Call me today at 847-858-3697 to learn more and check us out at nachicago.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. This is the Techno Elvis. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're talking urban nature today, and that involves foraging in cities, in your backyard, in your alley, where in the parking lot. I have a photo. Oh, wait a second. Two seconds. Let me grab the bag. I was going to say otherwise. I know where it is in my bag. I know where it is. A photo of... You, Some urban yeah, amaranth. Exactly. All right. Because this, uh, keep uh, talking. Keep on your, talking. All right. That's right. 
Anyway, to get back to the ramps, yes, they are. take a very long time from seed to to growth, and then it take another couple of years before they become mature enough to right. reproduce. So it is that's why they can't cultivate them, and that's why it's such a prized thing mm-hmm. with the chefs and stuff is because it's truly yeah. a wild. And that's food. and it's part of our heritage here in Chicago. Yep. Ch- that is Chicago is a Native American word that means stinking onion or smelly onion or skunk. There's a variety yeah. of there's yeah. kind of debate about it, but Native Americans would name areas that they frequented after the plants that grew there. And if you've ever walked through some old growth woods in Chicago, you step on a bunch of onions and you can smell it there coming out of, mm-hmm. out of the grass. So a lot of people say Chicago means ramp, but I think it's more of a general term for all the different varieties of yeah, onions. Yeah, all the grow. aliens. And... Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's where supposedly Chicago was derived from. Let's get the uh, the word out uh, that you said over on Facebook during the break, which is uh, somebody wrote. Who is it? Candace. Candace. Uh, <clears throat> Candace reminded us Yes, that... you cannot pick anything in any Cook County Forest Preserve's especially. Um, I believe the collar counties also have similar regulations. If you're going to, you cannot go to most natural areas and forage. Um, state to state, um, state parks, national parks all have different regulations. Mm-hmm. Some of them allow mushroom picking. Some of them allow fruit picking. Some of them say nothing at all. Um, so you have to check your state, county, local even like, you know, down to the park, like yeah. you have to check your local regulations to see what is allowed. And if it's private land, you would want to check with the land. Obviously. Yeah. And that happens a lot, a lot of places uh, in the country and certainly national parks and national forests and, and a lot, of, as you say, a lot of county and state uh, areas. You've got to be very careful. Uh, the the I would say the rule of thumb, don't just right. uh, just don't pick mm-hmm. the, yeah. uh, in places like that. I was in the Pacific Northwest. 25 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, I was in uh, the rainforest there, and it was a, a, a national forest, the uh, Quinault uh, nat- natural area, and um, going in to take a hike in in a small, like an hour trail there, and these folks were coming into the parking lot with a sword fern they had just dug up, uh, and it was, you know, six, five, six feet wide, and they're like, Taking it to the car. We're going to, oh, look mm-hmm. what we got. We're taking this mm-hmm. home. You know, and had I known then what I know now about that, I mean, I was appalled as it was, but yeah. I, I was just, my jaw was on the ground. I, I think I would have tackled them and, and beaten them to a pulp. Uh, if if I saw it today, but people do that kind of thing. It's yeah. Crazy. yeah, no, I know most foragers have a run. I, I know because I've done these stories mm-hmm. before, most foragers have had a run-in with the law at some point or another. I, I don't I know. Have, if, have you been in handcuffs, Dave? Uh, I have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it has um, nothing to do with foraging? Uh, well, it originally started because of foraging, um, but uh, then it just turned into uh, a cop looking for... He was just... It's a whole, it's a whole thing. Uh-huh. That's a different topic. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, I get but, it. I get it. But yeah, it was, uh, yeah, a couple of times I've got, like when I was first starting foraging and I was unaware of, of boundaries and laws, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily, I wasn't like poaching the woods or anything like that. Uh, it was just, I was picking in places. Uh, the, one particular time we thought we were picking in a residential area and it turned out to be the Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore, oh, which wow. we we oh, knew we no. were by, but we didn't know we were in. You hadn't crossed um, the line, yes. And mm-hmm. uh, but that was that was it was like a three hundred dollar fine. It was like they're like, okay, honest mistake, don't do it again. Yeah. Um, and um, 
Yeah. So, and then there was another time I was picking mushrooms and the officer was harassing me about it. And I, in, in, and I had, had gotten a ticket previously and in court, uh, the, the statute didn't mention any, anything about mushrooms or fungus, um, which would indicate that that wasn't part of the law. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go to court with a lawyer and he was like, that mushrooms aren't included in the law this. said plants, presumably. Correct. Yeah. Plants, Not... uh, plant, plants, rocks, sticks, yeah. branches, leaves, no mention of fungus. So the, the judge was like, you're right. So the same officer saw me picking mushrooms again. <laughs> and uh, that's when he put me in handcuffs because I had a machete in my car. Which I voluntarily told him about, but um, wow. and he he considered that a a, a, a well, deadly he, he, a deadly weapon and this that and the other thing. But it was really, I mean, it's an, it's like having a chainsaw in your car. It's an agricultural tool. It's really, um, but uh, long story short, I got off on that one too because. Well, he was looking for a reason to right. He was because he was mad about the first. He was just ticket, being, yeah. Uh, uh, and and uh, before I uh, I get back to Dan protests here, uh, very quickly, how did you? Okay, couple things we said. Don't pick. Uh, from uh, forest preserves and uh, state parks and national parks and that sort of thing. Don't do that. The other thing is, don't pick mushrooms unless you know what you're doing. Oh, yes, of yes. course. I mean, um, folks do know that, but I'm, I saw a story a couple of months ago about uh, a certain mushroom that's being picked and is killing people all over the place, and I, I'd have to find it. And it just, the it green, just... greensward uh, lepiota, probably. It's, okay. a, it's, a, it's one of the... It's the most common um, mushroom that poisons people in the United States. It's you probably seen them. They come up on on front lawns. They're like dinner plate size, giant mushrooms, mm-hmm. um, and they grow in fairy rings. And uh, people pick those thinking that they're a uh, a parasol mushroom, and they're not. And uh, yeah, a yeah. lot of people not good. make themselves either very sick or die from them. Um, but yes, mushrooms. Uh, there are plenty of. Uh, what I call idiot-proof mushrooms. Um, you want to start if you're going to start mushroom hunting, start with the polypore mushrooms. Polypore mushrooms are like the shelf mushrooms. They don't have gills on the bottom. They have pores instead. Mm-hmm. These are the kinds that you see growing on trees and things yeah. like that. Um, now these uh, these mushrooms. There's only two polypore mushrooms in the world that are toxic, and they're both hard as a rock. So it's not something you would ever try to eat. Um, but chicken of the woods mm-hmm. and hen of the woods. Ooh, those are good. Um, oh, yeah. Those are mushrooms that you can't you can't really screw them up with anything. And even if you did, you're not. It's going to be something that's also edible or non toxic. Um, so that's a good place to start. And that's There's a fall a, mushroom. Yeah. Um, both of the well, late summer yeah. for the chicken of the woods. Although they can grow in spring too, and uh, and yeah, and fall for the the hen of the woods. Which takes us very briefly to my other question, which is how do you decide uh, an area to forage in? Um, so in Chicagoland, it's tough because a lot of the natural area is in fact um, forest preserve, and mm-hmm. as we have established, Cook County forest preserves you cannot pick anything in the Cook County forest preserves. So um, there are. When it comes to mushrooms, you either have to find private land, kind of those margins between, uh, you know, between private land. Like, um, for instance, I'm not not that I'm telling anyone to go forage there, but if you think of the north suburbs and you go through, like, go up Sheridan Road and there's a, those ravines on mm-hmm. the side of the road, like, you can find a lot of places out there that are like these sort of ravines, like, that are next to a park or next to a, a, a development or whatever, that are kind of in this no man's land. They're not they're, really. They're, they're not, city owned, but they're not. Yeah, they're city owned. They're not. Or, yeah, and they're not like preserved. So like, like there's places like that, kind of like these margins in between things. Um, 
I've even gone to like Fort Sheridan, like mm-hmm. where they've turned the old uh, yeah. Navy base into into a uh, you know a housing development, basically. Well, and Open Lands Lakeshore Preserve is up there as well. Yeah, and you can you can you can literally walk around the you know the park there and find mushrooms growing in the park. You can find them growing in cemeteries. You can find them growing on people's front lawns. Like there's all kinds of places you can find mm-hmm. stuff in in the margins, kind of skirting around private and public lands that are kind of in these in-between areas. Yeah. Like you can go to a, a public park um, here in the city of Chicago and you can walk along like a river trail and you can pick mulberries as you go. I will add um, Chicago Park District is also off limits. Yeah. yeah. The, the Park District does not want you obviously uprooting plants, but I, I'm i pretty sure they're not going to have a problem with you eating mulberries. Yeah. I know this well. because I've tried to film stories before about foraging and it's hard to get permission to film just about anywhere. Yeah. I oh, think really? the last okay. time I did it, we were in an, an Evanston City Park let us go i don't know if there were there were probably some restrictions yeah all right and i did find that story believe it or Hmm. not uh it uh, was in the atlantic um in uh, february 1st here's the headline death cap mushrooms are spreading across north america sub subheading is there's nothing in the taste that tells you what you are eating is about to kill you and yeah. I actually, I, I, I discussed this with an emergency room doctor at mm-hmm. Cook County Hospital, and he said he sees a lot of immigrants coming from Eastern Europe in particular, coming to the U.S. who don't know the local mushrooms, and maybe it looks like something they saw in Poland or the Czech Republic. Some look very similar. Yeah. Some, yeah. some like world famous foragers have, have died that way yeah. by going to an area they are not familiar with, finding something that they think is something from back home. And it's not. So (laughs) I was going to ask, moving away from mushrooms, what are typical things that you would be finding? You you cover in in the um, in urban nature in the segment uh, flowers and leaves and. What was so fun for me about going out with Dave is that we were not in um, these beautiful natural areas that Mm -hmm. we're talking about. A lot of that was in Logan Square in some pretty dingy alleys. It looked like my alley. That's where I I, live. It looks like everyone's (laughs) alley. But what's amazing about it is that every single little crack in that alley had something growing in it that was edible. Not that it's advisable to find your dinner there. When we did the the segment, I took them to an area at the edge of a neighborhood it's mm-hmm. like a restoration area right along the chicago river where we we picked a few flowers and stuff like that um for the segment like that isn't and, and there's a it's not where you usually go it's not where i usually go and i knew that there were gooseberry bushes there that somebody had planted along the uh river side of the alley at some point mm-hmm. um a lot of them had been removed because they did some construction over there but i knew those those would be there and i wanted to show them on on camera and plus i hadn't harvested them in years so i grabbed some some of those for the segment um but that's like i said that's not my normal kind of thing when we did the walk through logan square so i do these things called eat the neighborhood um eattheneighborhood.com is my website um which you can check out and i do foraging tours where people will meet at a restaurant we will go walk around a couple block radius of the restaurant, and I guarantee I will show you 50 different things that grow in that neighborhood that are edible. Um, sidewalk cracks to trees on the sidewalk to people's front lawns to landscaping to the flower pot in front of the, yeah. the grocery store, whatever. Um, everything and anything, the idea being 
We're identifying stuff. We're not harvesting it there. We're not eating it there. I'm just showing it to you. So when you see it in your backyard or see it on your private farmland or whatever, you know you, it's edible. You know it's edible. And, right. and that was what was... So, yeah, we got music. We're going to break. We'll be right back with uh, with uh, Dave Odd and Dan Protest. We're talking about eating stuff well in your alley. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with The Mike Novak Show. Find us on Facebook at The Mike Novak Show. Use the Twitter handle at Mike Now. Send us a photo on Instagram at The Mike Novak Show or write to us, Mike at MikeNovak.net. We're also at TheGreenDivas.com and on the Gab Radio Network. Podcasts and blog posts are available every week at MikeNovak.net. Sign up for posts in our newsletter on the homepage and support the sponsors who support us. Look for their logos and specials at MikeNovak.net. Being a meteorologist, you see things daily that can be related or not related to climate change. And then you separate that from the climate science and the social policies. So it's almost like teaching three classes. Meteorology, which is short-term, the climate, which is long-term, and then the policy, which is government, whether or not it's federal, state, or local. I'm meteorologist Rick DeMaio. Stick around for some more insight into weather and climate on WCGO 1590, Chicago Smart Talk. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're very pleased to have the folks from Urban Nature in our studio. Dan Protest, he's the producer and writer of Urban Nature, and Dave Odd was one of the subjects uh, mm-hmm. that was dealt with in Urban Nature. Uh, give me a, a minute here to take care of some business, and we'll be right back to the conversation. I want to find out more um, about what uh, Urban Nature is doing in its second season uh, but first, got a minute for your trees. Peggy and I want to tell you about our recent visit to the Bartlett Tree Experts Research Laboratories in Arboretum in Charlotte, North Carolina. We spent two days learning about how Bartlett is continuously working on the science of trees, and it was impressive. Whether an on-site demonstration about the value of mulching or how an air spade can allow your tree roots to breathe and absorb nutrients or the latest technology in cabling trees or lightning protection, or a visit to the largest private lab in the country to see, you would appreciate this, Dave, and so would you, Dan, to see scale insects picked apart under a microscope. It was really cool. Or even a presentation about how simply amassing data can make a huge difference in how tree care issues are addressed. We learned how Bartlett stays ahead of the curve. And we learned that their people are smart, knowledgeable, and nice. A ton of good reasons why you should schedule a visit by a Bartlett Arborist representative. Because when it comes to science, and even a friendly bit of advice, every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. All right. Scale insects are the bane of my existence. I hate those things. (laughs) You don't eat them, apparently. No. If If you see a plant with scale, do you avoid it? Um, I I never see wild plants with scale. It's only like isn't that interesting greenhouse plants and stuff. Um, they so must taste they must taste great though because uh, ants like them. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of uh, a lot of these uh, these pest insects 
um, have ants kind of protect them because they secrete sugars. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So All the right. ants are like. And by the way, that postcard I gave you, yes. you know, Dave's, Dave's handing out postcards. And I noticed you went, you looked at the back immediately. And I've had other people say, how come you're not printing on the back? I don't know. That's where you write your notes. Okay. You can get, you get these made for the same price. Uh, M13graphics.com. So, so They're really good. Maybe. <laughs> but that amaranth was taken in Logan Square. Uh, and it was in uh, the parking lot of a liquor store. And obviously growing out of the asphalt, and I was coming by one day and I said, oh my goodness, I have to take that photo because this, you know, and a friend looked at that and he said, uh, self-portrait. And I said, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly growing out of the asphalt in, in the middle Resilience. of the, in the big city. And yeah. this is a mature plant outside of a liquor store. So it's probably buying liquor for the younger. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. See, there you go. Oh, and I just want to say, um, so after we do our walks around the neighborhood and I show you at least 50 mm-hmm. different edible things, we go back to the restaurant that we started at and have a meal made from the things that we saw on the, on the walk. Which of, you've supplied to the restaurant. Which I've supplied to the restaurant several days in advance that are collected from an area that is not a, you know, a dog pee alley. So there we go. Back to Dan Protest. Uh, you got some really cool stuff. Tell me what are some of the things people should be looking for in season two uh, of Urban Nature. So last season we went to San Francisco and New York. This season we went to Miami and Austin, Texas. And uh, so in Miami, you know, the climate there lends itself to all kinds of crazy nature. We went to a nuclear power plant south of Miami called Turkey Point that has become a crocodile refuge of sorts. So I've they, heard about that. They, I've uh, wanted to get in there for so long, but there, it's very high security. It is high Well, it's a nuclear power plant, yeah. so it's, it <laughs> yeah. should be high security. The crocodiles, though, found their way in uh, past security. Uh, and in fact, accidentally, and that's kind of a theme of this season, like uh, humans just kind of go about our business and all of a sudden realized that animals like the same things we like. So we, in this uh, case, humans built this nuclear power plant. It has these saltwater cooling canals that uh, cool the nuclear reactor, which it turns out is exactly what uh, mature breeding crocodiles need to thrive. Our saltwater waterways full of delicious fish and birds. Uh, and then they contain these canals with these berms, uh, mm-hmm. these raised earthen berms, which it turns out are exactly where female crocodiles like to lay their eggs and build their nests. Uh, so, so they've built a perfect habitat. Perfect habitat. And then these freshwater ponds formed uh, just naturally through these tropical rains mm-hmm. behind the berms, which is what the hatch the hatchlings can't secrete uh, salt water. They don't have their saltwater secreting glands yet. So they love these freshwater ponds. So accidentally they've created, and in fact, the... Uh, uh, croc- American crocodile was endangered uh-huh. and it has now been uplisted to threatened partially because the species has had so much success <laughs> at this nuclear power plant. And and the 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 benefit of it is that now they glow in the dark and you can see them coming, mm-hmm. right? Well, they say there's no radiation introduced. I'm going to have to agree with them because we didn't have our I believe own you. Geiger counter with us Croc- um, crocodilians eyes do glow when you they do glow it. and they're no larger you know there's also not mutants mm-hmm. large larger crocodiles although some of them were like 500 pounds and or more and we actually got to capture a couple went out in the middle of the night uh brought them aboard our boat to mm-hmm. measure and take their vital signs uh so that's in that story at wttw.com slash urban nature uh in austin texas a very similar story a sewage sludge uh, treatment 
facility where all of Austin, Texas's sewage goes. Mm-hmm. Turns out birds love it because uh, there are microbes that feed on the sewage. Uh-huh. There are insects that feed on those microbes and the birds come to eat those insects. Uh, so it's basically like a free, really disgusting buffet for the birds. <laughs> and now birders know about this place. Birders come from all over the country to get a look at these rare birds that are passing through Austin, Texas to f- essentially feed on our sewage. We, it... we have the same thing here over by the canal. Just uh, it's mostly seagulls. Yeah, uh, no, they, <laughs> all kinds of rare. It's right um, on the same flyway that we're on here in Chicago, okay. the Mississippi flyway. Right. Mm-hmm. And so all these rare birds are passing through and, and, and that, are, that, for are a meal. that are coming down Lake Michigan and then yep. going down the Mississippi and they end up in Austin, Texas as well. And, Feeding uh, on their and, sewage. And, and one of the, the episodes you did, and I think it was for season one, was about the bird collisions in uh Yeah, which is back in the news. Yeah, Chicago's a really dangerous place. We're number one for for, for, For for killing migrating birds. For killing migrating birds in the spring and in the fall. Yeah. In Dallas is number two. And so a lot now is happening to try to prevent these bird collisions. We Mm -hmm. interviewed architect Jeannie Gang, who is designing features into her buildings uh, that create visual noise that the birds can see rather than thinking that they're flying you know, they see the reflection of the sky right. in most skyscrapers and think they can fly right through yeah, it. Yeah, or see the plants inside the building. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or turning off the lights uh, at night during right. migratory season because the birds are attracted to the light. All right. Uh, give me one more that uh, you're really fond of. Uh, so we, And we looked at invasive species that are taking over South Florida. Uh, so we went out python hunting uh, in the middle of the night. Burmese pythons mm-hmm. are absolutely wow. taking over South Florida and it have not killed anyone yet, but they will, are, eventually. will eventually if they, they keep have they, at have pace. They, have they gotten any little dogs or anything like that? Um, yes, absolutely. And that's part of the part of the danger, as well as these Argentine tegus. You know, people have these animals as pets. They release them because they don't want the pet anymore and they breed. And now the Everglades are slowly being taken over. So we went out hunting and captured some of these beasts. I personally have actually captured a couple myself down there. My first love of nature was reptiles and amphibians. And in the wintertime, I can't forage here. So I go down to Florida for a couple weeks every month and get citrus and bring it back up here. And uh, we go and spend a couple of days in the Everglades looking for snakes and critters right. and stuff. All right. That's Dave Ott. If <laughs> folks want to get a hold of you and find out about foraging. Eattheneighborhood.com is the website. I have a whole bunch of events coming up. See, now I've got the oddproduce.com. What's, uh, oddproduce.com is my main site. Eat the Neighborhood is uh, kind of a subsection. That's the pedestrian, like the, the if you're not a chef... You're going to want to go to eattheneighborhood.com. That's where I have all my events listed. All the tours. All right. And uh, Dan, if folks want to watch the episodes, go to? WTTW.com slash Urban Nature. We now have 25 stories up about uh, nature in American cities. Fantastic. Thank you both. Captain's log, stardate 42326.1. The Enterprise is under attack by an apparently hostile life form. Mr. Wolf, status report. They appear to be perambulating vegetables. We are being stalked by stalks of asparagus. That is incorrect, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, be more specific. Asparagus officinalis, or killer asparagus, was the subject of a very popular 21st century tome by the brilliant author Mike Novak. 
Mike Novak. I'm familiar with his work. Of course. Attack of the Killer Asparagus is required reading at Starfleet Academy. Tell me more, Mr. Data. He has been variously compared to Mark Twain, Dave Barry, and Gwynok of Ninglador. Captain, shields are failing. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, options. Captain, it seems to be available online at aroundtheblockpress.com. What do they have to say? Hmm. It appears that Mike Novak is a slapstick every gardener, taking all our self-delusions, mishaps, and confusions, and playing them for big laughs. That's not very helpful, Mr. Data. No, it is, however, highly accurate. Welcome to the second hour of the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. This hour is brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food uh, Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Uh dear. Uh, we got a lot coming up. We've been doing a lot. We've been all over the place. And uh, um, uh, one of the things we're, we're going to talk about in the, in the next segment uh, when we have Nicole Virgil and Laura Calvert on the show uh, is something. They're going to be joining me again tomorrow at uh, a, uh, a, an event for Angelic Organics Learning Center. And I think you've, if you've got the information, you tell me. Oh, there it is. Wait, there it is. It's here. It's right in your cheat sheet. There it is. You take Steal it. your cheat sheet. Okay, you that's got my fine. cheat sheet. Um, it's their uh, Angelic Organic Learning Center's Come to the Tables dinner series at Goose Island Barrel House. Now, I could give you the address, but it's sold out, which is actually a good thing because uh, when folks are interested in talking about food and having good food, and uh, they invited me to be uh, a moderator for a um a uh, a panel discussion and the theme uh, is advocacy and ad- advocates right and uh, we'll we'll be talking about that tomorrow so i just uh wanted to give a shout out uh, to angelic organics learning center but folks can watch us on facebook tomorrow night that's right because peggy will be there streaming it it's the only way she could get in to have a free dinner <laughs> So uh, we we said, yeah, you got you got to bring Peggy because so sometime probably around seven thirty. I'm thinking. I'm thinking like that. Yeah. So we'll be streaming that live uh, tomorrow evening, uh, and then a week from Wednesday and next week we're going to have folks on the show to talk about this. But I want to get the word out um, on April seventeenth. How trees can help the world retreeing communities and making the world a cooler place to live. That's going to be at the Morton Arboretum. It's another panel, and it's, again, I don't know why, but I've been asked to moderate this one as well. Um, and, I don't, and, again, I don't know why, because there's going to be a room full of PhDs talking about climate change and trees and the, and the role that trees play in mitigating climate change. And it's only going to be like an hour and a half. Uh, but uh, you can, it's 7 to 8.30 uh, at the Ginkgo Restaurant uh, in the Visitor Center of the Morton Arboretum. Uh, and it's only 20, if you're a member, it's 20 bucks. If you're not a member, 25, so it's not much. Um, and uh, there's a, even going to be a little reception thing uh, beforehand. Um, and you can go to uh, mortonarb.org slash courses. Um, go ahead, if you want to jump in on I was just going to say you're moderating the speakers are Bill Schlesinger PhD of biogeochemist and president emeritus at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook New York 
Jeff Walk, Ph.D., Director of Conservation at the Nature Conservancy in Chicago. Chuck Cannon, Ph.D., Director of the Center for Tree Science at the Morton Arboretum. Colleen Murphy-Dunning, who directs the Hickson Center for Urban Ecology and the Urban Resources Initiative at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies in New Haven, Connecticut. And then Lydia Scott, the director of the Chicago Region Trees Initiative. Yeah, she's been on the show. She was here uh uh, a, a couple of years ago. It's, it seems like everybody who's been on the show has mm-hmm. been, it's been a couple of years. I, I don't know where the time goes, but so that's, that is a really cool event. Uh, the 17th of April uh, at the Morton Arboretum from seven to eight thirty, and all these. Uh, it's probably going to sell out. I'm thinking so. Uh, I sure hope so. Yeah. So order uh, your tickets now. And they're going, and we're not streaming it, but I believe they are going to stream it. Um, or do some kind of video presentation of that thing. So uh, I hope folks uh, show up for that. And then in a couple of weeks, we thought we were going to do this next week. And, and when Rick DeMaio uh, comes on the show later, I'm going to ask him about weather. Yeah, it seems to be changing, but it's still going to be chilly next yeah, weekend. Yeah, it's going to be chilly. And there was going to be an opening of something called City Grange. Um, and uh, this is from our friend Lamanda Joy, who... Uh, who started the Peterson Garden Project, uh, and it's a. There's going to be two lo- two locations. One opens this year, City Grange in Chicago, and that's at 5500 Northwestern Avenue in Chicago. I stopped by it just yesterday, last night. Uh, drove by it, took a couple of photos. Uh, they the, converted an old garage. Yeah, I'm thinking I get my oil changed while <laughs> while I get some plants. Cool. Uh, I'll ask Lamanda if she does it. Uh, she calls it the appetizer location because they've got a, a, a they're going to build a really interesting facility right on the border of Chicago and Evanston up on Howard Street uh, that's supposed to open next year. But meanwhile, the sampler or appetizer. Yeah, maybe sampler. They call it appetizer location, and uh, it's 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 a, apparently a new way of, of of gardening. You know, there's going to be plants, but there's going to be advice as well. Um, it's uh, curated tools, local plants, experienced organic gardeners. Uh, they say are there to help you get your hands dirty and your heart full. So uh, we are going to do their opening weekend, uh, which is two weeks from today. Uh, the opening weekend will be the thir- uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But then on Sunday, we'll broadcast our show live from City Grange at 5500 Northwestern Avenue. No- not Northwestern, the street, but Western Avenue, the north part of Western Avenue. That always is confusing in Chicago because if you say Northwestern, there's also a Northwestern street. No, it's North Western Avenue. Okay, there we go. All right, coming up. We've got, uh, well, talking about the right to grow plants in Illinois. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Hey, Chicagoland. When you want the best science-based tree care in the area, go to Bartlett Tree Experts. With locations in Barrington, Naperville, Chicago, and Northbrook, Bartlett has 80 tree care professionals ready to do what's right for your tree. And you. Whether it's your home or your business, a large job or a small one, every tree needs a champion. Call Bartlett for a free estimate. Go to Bartlett.com. This is Peggy Malecki. Are you ready to take your indoor gardening to the next level? Then you need to download the Anywhere, Anytime Garden Booklet from HappyLeafLED.com. 
You'll learn about lighting and troubleshooting and get advice from the pros about getting your seeds started. You'll also find recipes to enjoy the food you've grown indoors. Go to happyleafled.com and click on the microphone to download the beta version. Jumpstart your seedlings with better light. Happyleafled.com. Sunday morning wake up. <laughs> All right, do your yoga. I guess this is not yoga music, is it? Okay, so you can't do that. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And here we go again. Uh, we've we've got, uh, let me just say good morning, Nicole Virgil. How are you? Good morning, Mike. Good it's, to be here. It's good to have you back on the show. Uh, Nicole was here uh, about a year and a half ago. And uh, we we talked about an issue that was happening with her yard and her attempt to grow vegetables in her Elmhurst backyard. That issue is still ongoing. So it's it's it was a year. She had been working on it for about a year and a half at that point. Now it's another year and a half. So we got about three years in this, and we'll get into the details in a second. But I want to go to the phone as well and make sure that Laura Calvert, who is executive director of Advocates for Urban Agriculture, is with us. Laura, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being on the show. I'm looking forward to uh, all three of us, four of us, actually, with Peggy uh, running the camera tomorrow uh, at the Angelic Organics Learning Center event um, at uh, uh, um, Goose Island Barrel thank House. Thank you. Goose Island Barrel House. Just went, everything's just going out of my head today. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, we will, we will kind of pick up where we leave off here on the show. So, um, I, you know, I, Nicole, I should let you start. Uh, I, I could tell the story of this, but you know it much better than anybody because you've lived it. So tell us, uh, from the very beginning, what you tried to do and, and where it has gone since then. Yeah. So what we tried to do is grow some lettuce. It wasn't really that complicated. <laughs> okay, folks, that's all the time we have. And uh, That's the salad dressing. We're, we're moving on. We were just trying to grow some clean food that would mm-hmm. be reachable in our backyard and fresh so we could harvest it right before we ate it. That and was the that's idea. in Elmhurst, Illinois. That's in Elmhurst, Illinois, in our backyard. Um, and after we figured out how to grow a little bit of lettuce and how to compost and uh, uh, do some good stuff. We realized that the growing season's kind of short up this way because mm-hmm. it's Chicago. <laughs> and so the next obvious consideration was how can we lengthen the, the growing season and, and work with our kids outside and produce as much of our own food as possible. Um, and so it didn't take too long to figure out there's a variety of different ways to do this, but uh, a hoop house is one of the more functional uh, and practical ways to do this sure. uh, in a Chicago winter because it's not just the plants that need protecting. It's the people who are trying to work with the plants that need protecting <laughs> yeah. when, when you're outside, you know, and trying to get underneath a low tunnel mm-hmm. or something really short when it's extremely cold for the body is is uh, not that fun. So uh, we we put up a hoop house in 2015. It worked great. The city wasn't too pleased uh, they let us know that as long as it was temporary, it was okay. And so it was temporary. Can I, can I stop you right there? Yeah. You say the city wasn't too pleased. Um, did After you put it up, did the city stop by and say, hi, we, we work for the city? 
Uh, what do you got here? Yeah, we came home one day and there was a notice attached to the hoop house, which was sort of mid-construction as it was our first attempt at doing it. It took us a few weekends to, you know, get it together a few hours at a time. And one day we came home and, and the partially constructed, or maybe it was completely constructed. It was very early in the season, maybe October at that time. And uh, and there was a notice that, that we needed to come see the city as we were in violation. There was no specific code enumerated. Mm-hmm. Uh they didn't say that we were violating anything. They just said that we had to come see the city. Uh-huh. And so we did. All right. And the result of those conversations over a period of weeks was, well, you know, as long as it's temporary, it's okay. So it was temporary because it would get too hot in there with the passive right. solar heating in the summer. Not, not needed in the summer. Right. So our plan was to take it down around March, early April, which is what we did. There was no further discussion because it was temporary. Mm-hmm. And we understood that that was sort of to be the operating principle for the the unit going forward that we couldn't have it up year-round, but as long as it's temporary, it's okay. So in the fall of 2016, we went ahead and put it up again with the idea that it would still be temporary, mm-hmm. and we got another notice again. And at this point, we sort of said, well, why don't you tell us what it is that we're violating? Because <laughs> uh-huh. there's been no reference to any specific ordinance violation. And they said, well, we don't know. Let Let us get back to you. And so they did get back to us and told us that we were violating two codes, one was the mobile home code, which says you may not live in a mobile home, tent, or membrane structure on your residential lot, which we agreed with, said nobody's living in there. It's not a mobile home. <laughs> yeah. It's not a tent. It was well, a membrane. Well, some spinach was living in there. Right. right. And maybe a mouse or two when yeah. it gets cold. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then there was a second code, uh, which they referenced, which is from the permanent building code, which says that you may not make a permanent building out of a membrane structure. Specifically, it says membrane structures shall not be permitted for making permanent buildings, okay. which we also agreed with because that would be inadvisable on its face. Right. So um, we said, well, we appreciate these codes. We agree with these codes, but these codes are not relevant to our situation because it's not a mobile home. No one's living in there and it's not a permanent building. And from this uh, difficult beginning was was the beginning of a, a back-and-forth struggle that has continued until now. And it's involved not just uh, the the city council and and officials there, but also the courts. That is well. correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've, you've been to court several times about this, and they've always ruled in favor of the city. Well, so, sort of. With okay. The, with the information that they have used, uh, which was, again, these two code violations, which... The city argued with the city attorney and the city hired hearing officer yeah. that that these two codes were applicable. So since the city and their attorney and their own judge, uh, you see, they're sort of all batting on the same side. Did they all come to the same conclusion? Yes, they did. Uh-huh. But on its face, we would say that that's erroneous. Additionally, there was falsified evidence added to our judgment after the hearing, which mm-hmm. is uh, according to the rules of jurisprudence, that is unethical. So there was that case. And then there was a subsequent case upon which was based upon the first case. It was an appeal of that case. Yeah. Unfortunately, the first case had so many problems with it, it, it was almost inevitable that the second case based on the first case would go the same direction. <laughs> the party of the second part. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, in the case of the second case. Yeah. So, uh, so there you go. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit here as well to ask you, uh, way back in the beginning, from what I, from reading uh, materials about this and watching videos and so forth, 
from what I understand, there was a neighbor who didn't like it. Do you think it all stemmed from one complaint? At this point, I have to come to the conclusion that the displeasure of one family was the root of mm. the the underlying problem, as I can only take on its face what I've been told by certain city aldermen, which is, if your neighbors don't have a problem with it, we don't have the manpower, we don't need to, you know, if everybody's okay with but it, that's it's fine. Na- that's neighbors plural. If right. one neighbor, so one neighbor has the power to blackball uh, uh, some kind of construction like this or, or an effort that you, of yours? In this particular case, yes, because the disposition of that neighbor seems to resonate with the city council. And the underlying disposition, which I am now convinced of, is there's sort of an elitist attitude about growing or towards people who grow food, namely that uh, certain suburbs are, we have been told, uh, a cut above, or that hoop houses are not in keeping with the nature of Elmhurst because we are a cut above. And so there's this sort of elitist attitude that the accoutrement that attend the uh, cultivation of food is not appropriate for a highbrow neighborhood if you have people who are of that mindset, which uh-huh. this neighbor is and the city council is, you see they resonate, and so they've oriented against us. We do not share that opinion. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, we believe in food sovereignty. We believe in property rights. Well, we believe and, in liberty. Right. We believe in local food. <laughs> so, uh, And it's kind of turned into that uh, property rights and, and uh, right to garden is a phrase that has uh, – come out of this whole situation sure. and and that's where we are now um maybe this is a good time to bring in Laura who's been listening to all of this is is there any when did uh, advocates this is Laura, Cal- Laura Laura Calvert from Advocates for right. Urban Agriculture right and uh, Laura, um Laura when did uh uh Advocates for Urban Agriculture get involved in this uh, so our organization got involved a couple years ago. Uh, it was a few months, I think, prior to when I joined uh, the organization. But I, you know, since joining, that has been uh, one of our primary advocacy efforts that we've undergone. Um, you know, we've helped Nicole uh, do some research, and I've attended, I don't know, somewhere between three and five city council and commission meetings, providing expert testimony on uh, hoop houses, you know, what specifications they need to meet, uh, and just trying to educate the city council. Uh, You know, I think a lot of the information that they were retrieving was from quick uh, Google searches and looking at kits on Amazon, which was not appropriate. So I helped serve to, you know, educate them on what USDA requirements are and what best practices are uh, that we, you know, received from extension. So that's, you know, we've been involved, um, yeah, for the past, I don't know, two plus years. Right. And been an interesting ride. I'll bet. (laughs) And, and, uh, why, one of the reasons it's good to have you here is that you're not just an observer from afar. You sat in on some of those meetings, uh, and, 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 Mm -hmm. and watch the discussions. Uh, how would you describe the tenor uh, of those meetings, did uh, did it feel like uh, the the folks in uh, the city government in Elmhurst were were looking for uh, 
a good solution to this? Uh, were, were they taking the science into account? Not really. In my opinion, I don't think so. Um, you know, they did not ask me to uh, provide the testimony. That's something that Nicole had asked me to do. Um, you know, a couple aldermen, aldermen did follow up with me after one of my, you know, first initial uh, comments. But, you know, it seemed the attitude was kind of flippant and wanting to move it uh, along. So it, you know, we had been asking them to, to meet as a group or individually mm-hmm. to provide more thorough examination um, and education on, you know, what are the scientific and mechanical principles behind hoop houses, why you cannot arbitrarily, um, you know, set specifications that aren't rooted in USDA standards. And that's very difficult to do in a three-minute public comment period. And, you know, it was not asked for by the council, um, and it really wasn't followed up upon until state legislation was introduced. Right. And so you've taken us to where this uh, ultimately went. Um, we, uh, after after council meetings, after uh, court decisions, uh, and it looked like you were, Nicole, at the end of your rope here, and someone said, you know, you should take it to your state senator uh, and uh, and see what he can do about it. And so suddenly there was a bill introduced in Springfield that would preempt local authority uh, to uh, to prohibit these kinds of structures. Uh, let me say at the outset, right at the beginning, I am not a fan of preemption laws. I think they do a lot of harm. Uh, we've had examples of that in this country. We have it right now. For instance, if you, if uh, and and Laura, you might be aware of this, that if you said, I don't like the fact that my neighbor is putting 2,4-D on his lawn, I mean, my feeling is, okay, somebody's complaining about a hoop house, why don't you turn around and complain about your neighbor putting poisons on their lawn and, and potentially endangering your dog or your kids or 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 yourself? Uh, you couldn't do anything about that because the state has overruled the local municipalities, with the exception of Chicago. You cannot... Uh, you cannot uh, pass a law that is stronger than a state pesticide law. This this was done uh, by ALEC. A lot of people are familiar uh, with with the group ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council, uh, and they pass these sorts of laws all over the country. To they're all pro business, and uh, it was back in the early '90s because the government uh, said uh, that the I, I don't know. Uh, it was Supreme Court, but somehow nationally, it was ruled that yeah, you could pass a stronger law than the the uh, the, uh, the U.S. rule. And so the states, you know, they they had to get on it and make sure the states passed this thing. And now there's like uh, what thirty nine states that have these preemption laws. So this is the way it can go awry. On the other hand, it sounds like they have the the municipality. The city of uh, Elmhurst is not being particularly reasonable about this. So I understand why you went down this this road, Nicole. So uh, it went to the uh, the state Senate and there was a House bill as well. um, Tom Cullerton, Tom Cullerton and in the Senate and Alan Mm -hmm. Skillicorn in the House. They there's one bill in each house 
Um, if I can back up for a second there, sure, Mike, sure, I'd just sure. like to clarify one point. Um, I would characterize what we're working to do at yeah. the state level differently than you've just described. Go ahead. Yeah. I would characterize that according to the arrangement that we have in our structure of government, the states exist to protect the rights of the people. That's where the basis of it is. Yeah. Um, life, liberty, property. Mm-hmm. They protect freedom of speech. They protect life. They protect liberty in, in many cases, yeah. let's say. Um, this would be a specified notion of liberty that they are protecting. That's what the state primarily exists to do, is to protect rights. So it didn't used to be that people had to codify their right to grow food on their own <laughs> no. property. That was an understood uh, property right. right. But in this environment where municipal governments and the nature of home rule, which I won't take a tangent into, mm-hmm. but uh, the nature of home rule and and how the mayor-manager systems are set up in our municipal governments, there is no longer the natural property right to grow food. And so since the municipal give- governments exist at the behest of the state, it's appropriate then for the state to underline that liberty, that oh. natural right. We need to take a break. I want to get back into this. Uh, we've got uh, Nicole Virgil in the studio and Laura Calvert from Advocates for Urban Agriculture on the phone talking about the right to grow food in your backyard. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Give us a call if you want to join the conversation. Want to have a healthier, more eco-friendly Green Diva kitchen? In a Green Diva Minute, you'll learn more and be on your way to living a deeper shade of green. The main characteristics of a Green Diva kitchen are that it produces delicious food, is healthy, eco-friendly, and low stress. Let's start by using more dish towels and cloth napkins because paper products make up one-third of municipal waste. Buying bulk dry goods saves money and reduces waste. Please recycle more. An estimated 80% of what Americans throw away is recyclable, yet our recycling rate is only 28%. And of course, always try to buy local and organic food whenever possible. I'm Green Diva Meg. Please visit thegreendivas.com to find useful Green Diva podcasts, videos, and of course, lots of low-stress ways to live a deeper shade of green. This is Mike Novak. Serious and even not so serious gardeners in the Chicago area know that there's a year-round resource that always comes in handy. Chicagoland Gardening Magazine. It's the garden magazine for our region, and it's packed with information about plants indoors and out. Every issue contains insightful articles by gardening pros, fantastic photos, science, and more. With features like what to do in the garden, design tips, and Chicagoland natives, you're going to be ready to grab a trowel and dig. Even I have a column in the inside back page of every issue. It's practically fact-free, and I'm proud of it. Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, a publication of state-by-state gardening magazines. Go to chicagolandgardening.com and get a subscription. If you're in other parts of the Midwest or the South, try one of the 21 magazines in those regions by going to statebystategardening.com or call 888-265-3600. The dog days are over. Horses are coming? Okay, I didn't realize that. 
Uh, welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. In the studio we have Nicole Virgil, uh, who is a, a gardener and now activist uh, in Elmhurst, Illinois. And uh, we have Laura Calvert, Executive Director of uh, Advocates for Urban Agriculture, on the phone. And we've been talking about this uh, fight in Elmhurst to, uh, for, uh, by Nicole and her family to uh, get a hoop house put up there so they can grow vegetables. Somebody just typed in on Facebook, it's vegetables for Christ's sake. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. And now I want to address the thing that you just said about, uh, you, you know, your rights. I get that. Uh, I was bringing up the preemption laws, and I call them preemption laws, and some people call them other things, but there are all kinds of preemption laws out there. And it's almost turned into a battle where there, my preemption law is better than your preemption law. And mm-hmm. it's complicated. It really is. Because I'll give you an example of a preemption that worked in America and is really important. And that is, if we go to civil rights, do you think our schools would have been desegregated in the, in the 50s without the courts? Do you think that individual states would have done it? Yeah, eventually some individual states. And it, we'd still be doing that. And there would still be states where segregation was legal. Uh, so in some ways I go, yeah, sometimes you got to make that decision and it's got to be made for everybody because otherwise it doesn't get, it doesn't happen. Uh, so it's not easy. This is not an easy question. And, and my feeling is, and I think you agree and I, and I'm betting Laura will agree too, is that I sure wish the city of Elmhurst had been a little more reasonable. They dug in their heels early and said, no, we're not going to allow this. And Except for the ones that they do allow, by the way. There are membrane structures being used you in that. Elmhurst. Like what? For, like hoop houses. Yeah, like, like you were saying, Cabanas. the grocery store. Well, the, the grocery store is a large one. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a temporary use permit. Um, and we had asked if they might not uh, amend the temporary use permits yeah. so that it could be appropriate for residential backyard use. Yeah. Um, that was not accepted. That suggestion was not accepted. That was one way to find a solution. But there are many unregulated uh, membrane structures uh, that are designed to be temporary, but are in either permanent or year-round use um, all over Elmhurst. So the ban is not universal. No, you see, so, it's so largely it's, on us. Would, would you call it capricious and arbitrary? I understand that's a legal standard, <laughs> which I'm not supposed to use, but I, I would say at least arbitrary. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I, I can say it because I'm the radio guy. It, so, it sounds like it's capricious and arbitrary. Uh, and, and my feeling is they should have worked it out with you. Now, what I understand is that there were some meetings and uh, there was a, a partial solution that ne- didn't last, and that was uh, make a smaller hoop house. And it was Laura Calvert who explained to me why a smaller hoop house wouldn't work. Laura, would, do, would you care to jump in on that? Sure. So um, they, the commission had in Elmhurst recommended a hoop house to be uh, no greater than 100 square feet with a height of six feet. So that was arbitrarily set. Um, with hoop houses, obviously, the bigger the better because that allows uh, for thermal mass mm-hmm. and uh, passive solar gains to be captured through the winter. So you want a bigger space to capture as much sunlight as possible to heat up the air in the hoop house. And the more air volume that you have in there, the slower uh, 
it takes to cool down that air. So that, you know, the, that critical increase of a few degrees of temperature can save the crops inside during the winter. Um, it's also important to have, you know, certain widths and a, a peak height in order to create a more stable structure mm-hmm. uh, for it to bear snow loads better and to create a safer structure. So there is science behind it and there's standards that have been set to follow those principles. So that's why, you know, we've been arguing you can't just play with the numbers and set something <laughs> arbitrarily. Right. And the the structure you had was nine feet tall, 11 and a half feet wide, 32 feet long. Uh, and that allowed for that, that capture uh, uh, of the uh, the warmth and and uh, allow the vegetables to to survive and thrive. It uh, also allowed us to stand up. Yeah, give you yeah. working room. And yeah, I, frankly, I'm very disinclined to bend over in my own backyard because people don't want to see what it is that I'm doing or the structure that I'm doing it in. Period. Yeah. So uh, that that was also a consideration, but even that consideration, uh, making it smaller, apparently was wiped off the table and the city said, no, we're not even going to consider that. And we're just telling you to take it down. And so then you went to the state. So what is the latest with that uh, proposed state law? And that's SB 1675 and HB 1612, House Bill, Senate Bill. Yes, the the House Bill, as I understand it right now, is uh, we'll call it in holding (laughs) The the Senate bill is still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, Senator Cullerton has encouraged a local solution, which we are grateful for the opportunity to try it to work out with the city of Elmhurst. Um, I, I I can't disclose too many of the details. I will say that we we I did go down to Springfield. I did testify before the local government committee with Senator Cullerton. Um, I was very encouraged by the responses of the senators. They were very interested in local food, mm-hmm. um, although on, at the at the root of it, the the local government committee at the state level is like you, Mike, and and myself, interested in local government handling sure. local issues. And so that's why they've kicked it back to the city of Elmhurst, and we are currently in negotiations trying to work out something that would allow uh, what Laura mentioned, the, the thermal mass. Mm-hmm. and the science of the thing to work, and additionally, for us to be st- able to stand up. Yeah, I, <laughs> Under, Understand yeah, the height. Yeah, Some of your listeners might yeah. be confused, like, well, it's a six-foot-tall thing. Can't you stand up? I'm only five-foot-four. But it's the nature of a hoop house is that the center height, it's only that height right at the center, and then it bends down right, immediately. Right. So in order to get a regulation door, which is six foot eight inches, you need to have something eight or nine feet minimum because so, the curvature of the, the roof right. you know, limits the uh, availability you, you of the door. You have to have proper egress out of there. Right. And, and, and I agree, and it sounds like the uh, the state legislature is leaning on the municipality and I, and and I I'd be surprised if other municipalities didn't pick up the phone and call the mayor of Elmhurst and say dude dude you're going to make it bad for all of us would you please just resolve this issue um and and I and I'd be surprised if that hasn't happened um that has happened <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think there's motivation on both sides to see this mm-hmm. has worked the city of Elmhurst I don't know if you guys are aware I'm sorry the city of Chicago already has a program in place to provide for hoop houses, which is uh, 12-foot maximum 
and a 575 square foot area. And so we started with that basis in our negotiation with the city. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't we start with something that we know works and has no problems? And then yeah. we were happy to come down from that um, to to a lower height. So I suggested ten feet, and and uh, so you're we'll you're see. you're in compromise mode here yourself. Yeah, we'll see we'll see where it works out with the city. I know they're thinking about it, and we're thinking about it, and we'll. Hopefully get to some conclusion. So what's the next step? Are you waiting for... And by the way, uh, in reading the materials, at one point there was a vote in Elmhurst, uh, and it was tie, and from what I understand, the mayor broke the tie by ruling against you guys. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, in in all fairness and in full disclosure, I will say I was opposed to the six-foot-tall Oh, so that was for the six foot tall. So, okay. yes. All right. I mean, it, it was of no purpose to pass something to me okay, that well then, could not then, work. Yeah, yeah right. So, That's just... It would limit you to that. And yes. additionally, they were trying to categorize it as a permanent building and mm-hmm. regulate it as such, which would make it so that there's almost no place on my property where I could put it because of all the ancillary regulations that go with a permanent building. And w- you need to know that uh, in addition to advocates for urban agriculture, you've got the Illinois Environmental Council, Sustain DuPage. I saw they came out and did a video with you. Yeah, they've been great. Um, Urban Canopy, DuPage County Farm Bureau, uh, DuPage NAACP, Eco-Justice Collaborative. We talk to Eco-Justice Collaborative mm-hmm. all the time on this show, and they're downstate. You know, they're paying attention. Yeah. Um, Sierra Club and Elmhurst Hoop House. They, they're all on your team, and basically uh, on the other side are municipalities who right. say we don't want a preemption law. And another 1,500 Illinois residents who have signed witness slips on, in behalf of Senate Bill 1675. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's come down to this basic right to garden, which seems almost like a, it's, it's a bumper sticker. Yeah. Uh, and it's really much more complex than that. Uh, but if we got to take it to a bumper sticker, yeah, I'll go with that. I'll just say, yeah, you should let people grow food in their own backyard. And if you you got a problem with that, then there's something wrong with you. Uh, <laughs> really? No, there is. There's a, it's like, what what are you protecting? Who are you protecting? Well, that's where that elitist thing comes in. It's an image that they're protecting. Ah. That's what it boils down to. Well, la di frickin' da. <laughs> All right. That, that's kind of my response to it. Uh, we'll put that on a bumper sticker, yeah, too. But yeah, <laughs> really. Uh, we got two minutes here. So, Laura, I'm going to see you tomorrow uh, with Nicole. We're going to talk about this again um, at uh, the Goose Island Barrel House. And uh, is there anything you want to add that I've missed here, Laura? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, I appreciate Nicole bringing up, uh, Chicago standards, you know, they've been very supportive and we're, you know, uh, partnering with the USDA to help extend, um, funds for Mm -hmm. Chicago residents and gardeners to buy hoop houses. And the Chicago code was, uh, for hoop house was directly related to their accessory building code. So there was you know, a basis for determining that measurement. So uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, I've admired Nicole's tenacity around this issue and uh, appreciate the time that we can talk about it. And and you guys usually stick to city stuff, city of Chicago stuff. So uh, kudos to you for going out there because it does affect people in the city of Chicago as well, doesn't it? Yeah. And we, you know, we found that, um, you know, the city's pretty, you know, pretty open, but it's the suburban municipalities that are a lot more restrictive. So I imagine us doing more work uh, in the municipalities 
in our future. Okay. I will see you tomorrow, Laura. Folks want to go to uh, Advocates for Urban Agriculture. The website is? AUAChicago.org. Okay. And, Nicole, if people want to keep up with what you're doing, where do you advise them to do that? ElmhurstHoopla.com. <laughs> that would be H-O-O-P-L-A-H. That's correct. Dot com. Dot com. ElmhurstHoopla.com. Yep. Nicole, thank you for coming in. I will see you tomorrow. We just do this all over again. Absolutely. Thank you okay. so much, Mike. All Thanks, right. Peggy. My pleasure. Uh, we got Rick DeMaio coming up. Warm weather, cold weather, who knows? It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Smart farmers know that good growing starts with good soil biology, and you can't do better than with products from Tinyo Biologicals, the industry leader for 30 years, now available through Blazing Star. You'll find soil and seed inoculants, growth-promoting enzymes, foliar fertilizers, and biostimulants. Whether you're conventional, organic, or in transition, learn about Tinyo's biological farm management system. Go to blazing-star.com, and while you're there, check out their pollinator packets. Hey, this is Peggy, and I publish Natural Awakening Chicago Magazine. And for the past nine years, we've been helping Chicagoans to lead healthier and more sustainable lives. Pick up your copy of Natural Awakenings each month and enjoy inspiring information about integrative health, local and organic foods, creative expression, personal growth, our environment, and living a more sustainable life. Get your free copy of Natural Awakenings in locations throughout Chicago and suburbs or visit us at nachicago.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. Have you ever walked into a hair salon and been overwhelmed by the smell of chemicals? Well, that's never going to happen at Organic Roots Ego Salon. They use only the safest, most natural professional hair products available to make sure you get great color results that last and won't harm the environment or you. Their salon products and services are free from ammonia, formaldehyde, and other toxins typically found in hair color, perms, and keratin smoothing treatments. Organic Roots also offers a complete menu of safe straightening treatments, including the non-toxic Magic Sleek and Cezanne Keratin Smoothing products that let you shampoo the same day. They even repurpose hair clippings, recycle product containers, and use LED lighting. Now that's green. Walk into 21st Century Hair Care for women and men at Organic Roots Eco Salon, 3417 Dempster in Skokie. Book your appointment at OrganicRootsEcoSalon.com or call 847-423-2653. Health and beauty. You no longer have to sacrifice one for the other. Oh, yeah. Whatever happened to this song? I don't know. <laughs> it was really hot for a while. Yeah. And then it's, well, uh, you she's, know. she's moved on to she's, other she's, things. She's now, she's Oscar material. Yes. Uh, she's moved on to Hollywood. But speaking well, of Roma, Roma Tomatoes. Ah, okay. I'll give you a ding. Yeah, we got our buddy, KC Tomato. I hope he's listening this morning. Uh, we've got his seeds. Uh, well, Tomato, tomato, We're tomato. germinating, baby. Uh, he sent uh, some packet of seeds to Peggy and me, and we each got slightly different. I mean, he got, uh, we both got the uh, 4-5L-2-3-4-3-2-4. Thanks, uh, Or as he said, blah, blah, blah. And oddly enough, I would know what it is. <laughs> and then he gave us something called a Delta Queen 
which is a larger delta carotene tomato. You didn't get that one. No, I got the 16H11-17K lower (laughs) case V-3. This is what you, when you you communicate with a tomato breeder, this is what happens. And these show up on your doorstep. And then we both got something called the Sun Lucky, a larger cherry type tomato comes from a cross of Sun Gold and Little Lucky. So we're germinating those. It has a unique tropical taste. Looking forward to it. Yeah. By the way, those have not come up yet, Casey. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that any day... They pop up. But thank you. Yes. We will keep you posted. Uh, we definitely will, and our listeners as well. Let's go to the phone. Meteorologist Rick DeMaio, and I see that our buddy Rick is uh, at an event tomorrow. I'm at an event tomorrow. You're at an event tomorrow, Rick. It's uh, at uh, four, from 4 to 6 p.m. Go ahead. You want to it's t- event Monday. It is. <laughs> the climate for change is now. It's the, the the showing of the film Paris to Pittsburgh. You talked about this on the show a few weeks ago, Rick. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a pretty good movie. Um, I mean, it starts out with uh, Trump basically saying that we're going to pull out of the Paris Accord. And then all of a sudden, um, he talks about how I was voted to, you know, basically uphold the interests of the people of Pittsburgh as opposed to Paris, and little did Trump know that Pittsburgh is one of the more progressive cities, uh, basically becoming more involved and engaged in renewable resources. So even though, like, to him, P was a good word to use, um, he didn't choose the right city nor the right state because the people of Pittsburgh stood up and go, no, 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 we want to be involved in the Paris Accord. Uh, And it basically is kind of like a little bit of a kind of a thumbnail of what you can do to combat the fact that Trump and the White House and the EPA said, we don't need to be a part of the rest of the world, but the rest of the United States said, we want to be a part of the rest of the world. So I'll be showing that Loyola Damon Hall, uh, which is, I believe, part of the union there. They've kind of renamed some of the uh, some of the buildings there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I've already shown it to my students twice. I kind of know the movie by heart. But I'm, I'll be sitting through it a third time and leading a bit of a, a panel discussion following that. So free to the public, 4 to 6 p.m. at Loyola University tomorrow. Wow, fantastic. Again, it's at Damon Student Center. Uh, and uh, the Lakeshore campus of Loyola. Right. There's no address. On, right, right, right. Yeah. Right. So the Lake, yeah, right. Folks should know it at the Lakeshore campus. Uh, there's, I don't have. Um, any... just, just basically, yeah, just, just point your nose towards the student union and you'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and, uh, and, and I, I need to explain, uh, why I sent you that email the other day. And I said, is it going to snow next week? Well, there was an event scheduled for next weekend. Uh, that somebody wrote to right. me, and, and they said they were moving it back a week because there was a forecast of snow, and that's all I know. That's all I know. You know, I heard. Oh, yeah. So, so somebody obviously heard the word snow flurries or rain mixed with snow, and they panicked. And cold temperatures and cold temperatures, yeah. And they just said, "No, we don't yeah. want to have our event." You know, and I, and I can understand that because I even had, you know, some of my students in my Friday class said. Um, I'm really upset that it's going to snow next week on my birthday, and I kind of and I kind of looked at it. I'm like, next week, like like Tuesday, Wednesday. Goes, no, they said it's going to snow on Friday, <laughs> and I was like, I was like, who's they? She goes, I don't know. It was on my phone, and I'm like, oh my god. And this is one of the problems we have with with data, with science, with social media, with the ability to get data from all sources without really knowing where it comes from. Because as soon as that forecast goes back to being reality, the person will say, well, they said it was going to snow, and now they changed their mind. 
and, and in some sense, and I, and I hear this all the time, and in some sense I'll, I'll hear people say, what happened? They were wrong. What changed? And first off, what changed was that, first off, eight days, anytime you go into the month of April, you know, and Peg knows that this time of the year, you could be 70 degrees or 40 degrees. So you have to take that with a huge grain of salt. Um, but the fact that this information goes out there, you know, kind of, um, I guess what, what the word, I'm trying to look for the word here. It, it's kind of like it's, it's untethered. It just floats around there. People, people believe this stuff. So when I saw that forecast of, of eight days out that it's going to snow, I'm like, hold on a second. That's fantasy land this time of the year. Is there going to be a major storm that's going to move to the Midwest? Absolutely. Are we going to get snow? No, that's going to be like up across Minnesota and Wisconsin, but it does look like a major storm is coming through the Midwest Thursday uh, and could produce, I think, for us more in the way of severe weather rather than snow. So we'll get off the snow stuff in a hurry, right? Uh, yeah, and you're you're absolutely right, because when I heard that, somebody had sent me this email said, it's going to snow next week. I immediately went looking for <laughs> for the information, and I couldn't find any. I said, no. I said, okay, it looks no. like it's going to be, you know, in the upper yeah. 40s at the All end I of the week. All I saw was, yeah, if the, if the track shifts, we could right. get snow. Yeah. Yeah, you know what you know what's happening a lot, guys, is that and and Skilling has talked about this and I and I'm glad he has because what what you'll get is you'll get certain people who are kind of like into weather, they'll find something from a numerical model and they'll post it and they'll almost see how many hits they can get on your blog and they'll go, <laughs> Look, people are paying attention to me whereas the weather service and your more reputable sources of weather will stay away from that until three or four days where they can make a confident call. And again, you got to know where the information comes from. Yeah, you do. So you say yeah. there is there is a major storm on the way, however, and you think... Oh, we... God. D- define major storm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, f- um, for one thing, Peg, uh, when we look at normal atmospheric pressure, uh, normally you're looking at about 1,000 to about 1,010 millibars mm-hmm. for a surface low. When this thing comes through parts of northern Iowa and southern Minnesota, it could easily be down to about 980 millibars. So this is going to produce blizzard conditions from North Dakota into Minnesota and Wisconsin, and it could be a major severe weather outbreak, meaning that we could be not only under a moderate risk, but probably even a high risk for severe weather. Now, am I pushing the envelope on this? Not really, because it's now the third or fourth day in a row that the storm is now tracking well to the north mm-hmm. of us, and if that occurs, sufficient amount of moisture will move out ahead of this. And this is going to be one of those very, very, um, you almost have to think of them as possible, you know, large scale, you know, long track violent tornado events that Mm. could occur. And again, that's going to be during the day on Thursday. After that, or even prior to that, we actually were going to have pretty nice weather in here beginning as early as tomorrow once we get rid of the clouds and the rain today. All right. So give us that forecast. Yeah, uh, first off, it'd be nice to live west of Ashland Avenue where the temperatures may actually crack 60 degrees. <laughs> I think here in Evanston, two blocks off the lakefront, I barely got above 45 yesterday, and it's probably in the mid-40s right now. So everybody got into the mid-60s yesterday, probably low to mid-60s today, clouds, a couple of showers, nothing really heavy. I see a lot of people did a lot of fertilization to their lawns yesterday. That's a good thing because today we'll get the rain. And then nice dry weather with temperatures probably 65 to 70 tomorrow before we cool back down Tuesday and Wednesday back into the 40s right along the lakefront, mid-50s inland, and then significant amount of rain and some storms around here on Thursday. But overall, the next probably four or five days, your typical up-and-down stuff as you normally get this time of the year in the middle of April. All right. Well, enjoy your uh, film showing tomorrow, and uh, uh, we'll talk to you next week. 
Sounds good, guys. And I'm, by the way, I am releasing my taxes this week as well. <laughs> okay, I expect to see them online. Yeah, it includes losses for tomatoes, but that's okay, right? So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, take care, Rick. See you next week. All right, thanks to everybody on the show. Dan Protest, Dave Odd, Nicole Virgil, Laura Calvert, and, of course, uh, thanks to Ellie and Andrew. Until next time, go green or go home. Stadler? Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much.